You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. here to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. Today, we've got an interesting show. We are going to be talking about the chosen people. Are we talking about the Jews? Well, partially, maybe. It depends on what our author thinks, largely, since he's written the book, The Chosen People. And that book is, that author is a Dr. A. Chadwick Horn here. He is the Chair of Theological Studies is an assistant professor of apologetics and biblical studies from Liberty University School of Divinity. He completed his B.S. from Liberty University and his M.A.R., M.D.V., and Ph.D. from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the author of The Chosen People, Election, Paul, and Second Temple Judaism, and Greek for Everyone, Introductory Greek for Bible Study and Application, as well as a number of articles and essays. So, uh, Dr. Forn here, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you very much, Nick, and feel free to call me Chad. Okay, Chad. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to be looking into that Greek for everyone right now. I'm working on learning the language as well. So. Very good. Yeah, it'll be out in, um, I, I might have said September. I think I think it got bumped to October. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that out and seeing what people think, and I, I hope it'll be helpful to, mm-hmm. you know, to pastors, to lay people, to seminarians, mm-hmm. all up and down the line, um, mm-hmm. to help them think better about the Bible. Well, let's, before we get out of the personal introduction, let's just say a little bit about that. Learning a new language to some people just sounds so geeky and nerdy, and you're kind of like, <laughs> what's the point? Why should especially like a layman just listening to this podcast who's not, not going to ministry or anything even, why should they really care about learning Greek? That is a great question. Um, I suppose I would start just by saying if if they care about um, understanding the New Testament in its original context and what its original message was, um, then they should care about knowing Greek. And they might not necessarily see the connection between those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I, I like quoting Bill Mounts on this, he has a, a great line in one of his books where he says, all translators are traitors. Mm-hmm. And, and what he means by that is simply whenever you're moving from one language to another, uh, you know, we have this this cute little phrase that, everyone's heard lost in translation and it's, yeah. it's true for a reason. Um, when you, when you look at the field of linguistics, basically everyone recognizes no two languages are identical. It's, even if they are similar, so take, you know, Greek and Latin, which are fairly similar, there are nuances that are different. And so there are things that, um, simply, first of all, can't be brought over into English from Greek. And mm-hmm. this isn't something, you know, translators or translation committees are trying to hide from us. This isn't some big conspiracy. It's just the fact that English isn't Greek. 
Um, I'm so there's one example might be that the Greeks have four words for love. We only have one. Sure, and even you know, and even that one of the things that I um, try to harp on in in this book that's coming out uh, that you mentioned is recognizing that words are flexible. Um, you know, so even sometimes a lot is made about those four words where, mm-hmm. where there's sort of a hard distinction that's, that's read into them everywhere they occur. Um, but context is king. So, uh, you know, agape, frequently you'll hear it preached, you know, agape is, is, is divine love. It's the love of God. In certain contexts that might be true, um, but you really have to look at the context, at, at how it's being used, at who's using it, um, and how that author typically uses the word, and, mm-hmm. and so it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so one of the one of the big goals of the book is just to expose people to some of the nuances that can't be brought through well in translation, and to help them think better as they're reading their Bible. You know, to encourage encourage them to use multiple translations, mm-hmm. and then to and really give them a process. Um, Towards the end of the book, there's there's basically sort of an intro, you know, real brief hermeneutics, exegetical method kind of thing. And those terms might sound kind of scary. So, um, but basically, it's just how we think about what the Bible is and how we read it well. Um, th- that's that's the uh, the goal of those two fields. Um, so, and there's all sorts of examples that I bring out in the book. Um, you know, one of the things, and obviously this ties into to the other book on Paul that I've written. Um, but one of the things that I've really come to value is um, really focusing on the historical and the cultural situation of the first mm-hmm. century. And there are so many ways where that's just incredibly different from where we are today in the West. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't we don't do this typically out of, um, you know, some sort of malevolent intent, but we read um, – you know, we just read the Bible as Westerners. We can't help it because mm. that's who we are. So, um, so thinking about the Bible as a book written to first century people, uh, specifically the New Testament, thinking about the New Testament, um, since we're dealing with Greek in that book, as a book written to first century people and trying to give a little bit of a glimpse into what the first century looked like, how people thought, you know, what, what were their societal structures and how that influenced what we see going on in the New Testament. Um, and once you get into that world, I think it opens up the New Testament and, and especially some of the things that feel and seem a little bit strange about the New Testament. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think it opens those up in not only not only a way that we are able to better understand what's going on, but I think there's actually quite a bit of really good application um, for us today as 21st century Christians that comes out of that kind of thinking as well. Um, so those are some of the some of the big goals in the book. I I call it, you know, it's sort of like a a functional approach. It's not memorizing, you know, all the endings of Luo and uh, you know all the different moods and tenses. That's that's the yeah. main goal is for people to know what resources are out there, to know how to use them, how to use them well, um, and again to to think more in terms of context and to think, you know, to, to think about what a good uh, method of Bible study would look like. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned about how we read things from a more Western perspective and such, I'm going to give a reference here that I'm sure you're probably familiar with, but 
for those of you who are listening, go back to the archives on May 17th of 2014. We interviewed E. Randolph Richards on a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Yeah. I have to say, when I read the Bible and started studying the honor-shame paradigm and such, mm-hmm. that has made a huge, huge difference in how I understand it. And even on a more recent one, we had a... Jackson Wu come on talking about one mm-hmm. gospel for all nations, and we talked a whole lot about honor shame in mm-hmm. that one. Yeah, very helpful. <laughs> now, Chad, uh, if my audience doesn't know you too well and such, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? Um, a little bit accidentally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I so I I went to um, I transferred into Liberty in my undergraduate program with the intent of going into um, youth ministry. So I majored in Bible. Uh, we had a, a youth ministry program, but, but kind of my line of thinking was, you know, I, I, I didn't necessarily think I would be a youth minister for probably the next 40 years. So rather than majoring in youth ministry, if I major in Bible and then maybe take some, you know, some ministry elective, um, I thought that would maybe serve me better for, for the long road. Um, once I finished my bachelor's degree, my wife, uh, we got married um, a semester before I graduated, and my wife had gotten a job at the university. And one of the great things about Liberty, and it's not unique to us, but a lot of schools do this, but if you're on staff there, um, you and your children, your spouse go can go tuition free. So you have to pay for fees. You know, you still have to buy your books, but tuition is is taken care of. Um, so in light of that, I decided to go ahead and go through seminary and and still planning, um, you know, the the to go into the full time local church ministry um, track. And about about halfway through my seminary program. I got an opportunity to fill in for my Greek professor a couple of times, and then I started teaching part-time um, at the undergraduate level. And a, a former professor that I had um, you know, approached me one day and said, we're looking for some adjunct faculty. Would you be interested in teaching Greek part-time, you know, one class a semester? And I said, absolutely, uh, just because I had, I had taken so much of it but also had, had really come to gain a – an appreciation of the language. Um, so I started teaching part time, and I mean, it was it was not shortly after that that I really felt um, the way that I had been gifted would be best used in a in an academic type context. So mm-hmm. started looking into PhD programs. Um, kind of, I knew Liberty was about to launch a PhD out of the what was the seminary at the time, where now um, School of Divinity, our undergraduate and graduate programs are now combined into one school. They were they were two separate schools prior to last year. Um, so I basically applied at a couple of really top tier. Um, my focus intended being New Testament, really top tier New Testament programs, and didn't get accepted to any of them. Um, so. Uh, so I ended up doing my PhD at Liberty and really had just a, a tremendous experience. So I had, you know, five or six seminars with Dr. Habermas, which was, you know, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, just as you know, you know, not only a great, a great mind, but a probably even better person. Um, and a great so, matchmaker too. 
Uh, yeah, and a, and a great matchmaker as well. Um, so love that experience. Um, Dr. Leo Purser is our program director. He did his PhD at Baylor and uh, focused in New Testament, and he ended up chairing my, my dissertation. And uh, Dr. Gary Yates was a professor I had a couple of classes with, a PhD from Dallas, and he's a Old Testament specialist. And just so, I mean, top, and then John Morrison was one of the other main professors in the program. Um, he's a PhD from UVA in, in uh, uh, systematic or philosophical theology. I'm not sure which, which area was his doctoral focus. Um, he studied T.F. Torrance in his... Uh, for his dissertation, but I mean, just brilliant men and, and good men as well. Um, so I had a great experience. Uh, and so looking back, you know, I, I think sometimes had I gotten into one of those schools that I applied to, you know, would I have gone there knowing what I know now about the program that I went through at Liberty? So I really have nothing but good things to say about, about the PhD program and my experience there. Um, so, you know, initially about a couple of years into the PhD, um, I was brought over onto full-time faculty, and that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. Yeah, and for those who might be listening for the first time, I want to explain what the thing of Gary Habermas, who, by the way, has been on the show twice, both times talking about the topic of a resurrection. I think he knows a little bit about that little, one. He, yeah. he studied it somewhat, <laughs> but um, he is actually the person who introduced me to my wife today, and not only did he introduce us, he married us. You can go on Facebook. I've got photos, everything to show it. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to say something else about you, Chad. Because, you know, we were hearing all this talk and hearing, oh boy, here are a couple of theology nerds and such getting together talking about this. But for those who don't know, I was very surprised. I find out, found out by day, Chad is a New Testament scholar. By night, he is a ninja, apparently. <laughs> I- I'm not kidding with that one. You uh, have uh, tried out for the American Ninja Warrior, haven't you? I have. Well, I've I've applied two years now mm-hmm. um, to be on the show and almost made it from uh, a conversation that I had with one of the folks in casting, almost made it on this year. Um, but sort of as a consolation, I got to go down. Uh, actually, they filmed the first episode. Um, it, I think it will air second, but it was the first one they filmed this year. Uh, they filmed it over our spring break down in Atlanta, so in, in your neck of the woods. Mm. Um, so that was at Turner Field. Um, so I got to go down and be a course tester and then hang out with, with a bunch of ninjas that weekend. So it was a, it was a fun experience and then went to um, the, one of the, of the filmings of the show as well. And I didn't, I didn't realize this, but they film literally through the night. Um, so they start filming at about nine when it gets dark. Um, I got there about midnight and left about 5:30 in the morning, and they were still taping. So basically, from sundown to sunup is when they film the episodes, and uh, they're a really fun experience. So, but yeah, that's that's um, that's I guess my uh, my side deal. If this if this professor thing doesn't work out, maybe I can win a million dollars on a TV show. You know, I, I like to point that out because <laughs> a lot of people think that when we discuss these kinds of things that everything we do revolves around us, that we don't do anything else. And no, no, <laughs> we, we do 
other things. I've seen Bill Craig make a post about watching Downton Abbey, for instance, and <laughs> I can be a Final Fantasy and Zelda geek entirely. So, yes, we, we actually do do other things sometimes on this show. <laughs> it's theology and apologetics. Well, I actually share that uh, that that other nerd hobby with you because I'm I'm uh, I don't play them as much as I used to, but I think I've owned every Zelda game except for one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, technically two: the the Oracles uh, games that I think came out on Game Boy. Yeah. And uh, I think I think I played every Final Fantasy through ten, and then. Uh, Life, life took over, and so my my uh, gaming hobby isn't quite what it once was, but that's that's one of my uh, my secret pastimes as well. <laughs> and you might have to talk about that some off the air or something. Such there you go. Know. But let's get to the uh, the topic that's on the plate today, the chosen people. Now, first off, uh, since I've made the comparison talking about uh, us being nerdy theological type guys, and why should any of us spend so much time talking about who the Bible says are the chosen people? I mean, it seems obvious most of us where God chose the Jews. Duh. I mean, isn't that obvious what we're talking about? Yeah, well, in a, in a sense it is. Um, I, I guess the, the way that I kind of came to this question um, was, is you know, really through the lens of the New Testament. And what, what I think probably is... Um, it's hard to talk in terms of numbers, but certain one, certainly one of the main views that you find in New Testament circles today is um, sort of a replacement view. The church has replaced Israel um, as well as an understanding of this notion of chosenness or what, what sometimes is called election mm-hmm. Um through really, I, I guess, an Augustinian and subsequently a, a Calvinistic lens where it is um, understood to be about God choosing specific individuals to be saved mm-hmm. and thereby either not choosing uh, the others or specifically choosing them for, um, you know, for eternal punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, theologically, that wasn't a view that I um, that I held, but I had a hard time because that view has such a you know such staying power in Christian circles, and and obviously again through through Augustine through the Reformation has has had a lot of influence um, among Christian theologians. I I never really knew what to do with passages like Romans 9 to 11 or Ephesians 1 and 2 um, I didn't have a I didn't have a framework really um, for for doing anything else with them so it was sort of by accident that these two things came together um, in my MDiv towards the end of my MDiv program I got my interest peaked in Second Temple Judaism and did uh, did a independent research class on the Apocrypha which is I like to I like to refer to that as a uh, sort of a curse word among evangelicals. Um, so rarely is the we'll apocrypha, bleep that out later. Right? Yeah, we'll bleep it out later. Um, rarely is the you know the apocrypha mentioned in, in a positive way. Um, and then in my in the 
PhD program, got into some research in Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. So, you know, a lot of people don't even know what that is. I didn't know what it is until I, I just didn't know what it was, I should say, until I discovered it. Um, but these are books like First Enoch and Jubilees and the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs and um, and on and on and on, Joseph and Asenath and, and others, mm-hmm. uh, The Life of Adam and Eve, and there's, you know, there's dozens of these. And what they are are, um, you know, the view that I kind of – I didn't know any of this was out there other than the Apocrypha, and I didn't really – I think realized that the Apocrypha was Jewish for a long time. I always just kind of assumed it was Catholic because those are the books that the Catholics like and we don't like them because we're evangelicals. Um, so, you know, sometimes scholars refer to these 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're referred to as silent years because we don't have any canonical uh, writings, at least in terms of, you know, the Protestant, the majority Protestant canon. Uh, but they were very, they were actually quite loud. <laughs> mm-hmm. There was a lot that was being written. Uh, there was a lot being said. And the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, give us a really important window into what Jewish theology, and, and you know, we use that term as our term, not theirs. They didn't, they didn't think about theology as sort of a special discipline. Um, but what did Jews believe about God, about the world, about what God was doing in the world, what God was going to do with the world. Um, and, you know, as I got into some of that, I could see the connecting points and, and some of the parallels with the New Testament. And um, so, you know, that, I, I kind of tell this story a little bit in the first chapter, but that along with getting it exposed to some of the New Testament authors who have done a lot of work in Judaism, and most of them, are folks affiliated with the new perspectives uh, that have, have kind of tried to bring those two worlds together. How do we think about the New Testament in light of Second Temple Judaism? So N.T. Wright and James Dunn mm-hmm. and others. And it was through that combination of things that I started to sort of revisit um, what exactly is going on in, in Paul's letters in light of some of what I was seeing in the Jewish literature. So that question, you know, basically turned turned into the dissertation, and then uh, is is now in a slightly different form available in the book as well. Yeah, I uh, I read the Apocrypha several years ago. I remember, and I think one of the main memories I have is reading this book of Tobit. I think it was. Oh yeah. And about how the main character goes off on this adventure and ends up. Encountering this family who has a daughter who's married several different men, but every night before they could consummate the marriage, every time a demon always killed the yeah. man. Yeah. And so Tobit, I think that's the main character was Tobit. I think he, he was instructed on how to deal with a demon and marry the girl in the story. And I just remember reading probably where his mother, being a good usual mother, was back home saying, my son hasn't come home, my son hasn't come home, what's happening, what, yeah, is he in love? I'm thinking, no, yes, your son's doing actually pretty well for himself right now. <laughs> yeah, Tobit is a, uh, it's a great, it's a great little, uh, very entertaining kind of story. Um, but even, you know, even some of the, as you get, especially towards the end of the book, um, 
you know, some of some of the chapters sort of echo what we see and hear in the Old Testament prophets. They're awaiting God to come and set things right. They know that they know that the way things are aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's definitely you know the that literature is is interesting for for lots mm-hmm. of different reasons and it has its own kind of historical situation. Um, but it's it's interesting to me to see how the theology of the Old Testament grows into the Second Temple period, and they're they're basically addressing, in a lot of ways, similar situations and in a lot of ways unique situations, um, but still very much rooted in their thinking in in what they find in you know in the Pentateuch and in the in the poetic yeah. books and in the mm-hmm. prophets. Mm-hmm. Now, since we've answered for the layperson, since you're a professor of apologetics as well, and since this is an apologetics podcast, what can an apologist learn by studying the chosen people? Well, um, I suppose that would depend on what kind of an apologist uh, one might be. Um, so, you know, I mentioned I mentioned um, one of the major things that I that I challenge in the book is sort of this traditional view of election and basically my argument is that uh, I think there are two two major things that we have to take in consideration one is recognizing that there's a story uh, to election so that you know we put this we have to put it in a salvation historical context God chose Abraham he chose the nation of Israel and we you know, we have to bring that story into conversation with what Paul is talking about when he talks about the elect or when he talks about God's God's choosings uh, in his letters. So, you know, it has this the story as a background, but I think it's also primarily focused on, uh, you know, the collective or what sometimes ref- sometimes refer- referred to as a corporate view of election. So. It's more about God's people as a people than about God choosing specific individuals. And so I think the, you know, I think the main thing, what, what's, one of the major things that stood out to me, um, and, and informed how I approach this, this issue is in most of the places where Paul is having some kind of a focused discussion about election. He's discussing it in the context of Gentiles coming into the people of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so that seems to me to be a really important piece of what we have to consider as we're interpreting these passages. Um, so, you know, in in light of that, uh, on the apologetic side of things, I think that this eases some of... Uh, the arbitrary objection, so to speak, on mm-hmm. certain forms of uh, uh, of understanding of election, um, that that God is you know arbitrary in His choices and therefore can't be deemed as good. And election would be you know an example of that. Um, obviously, folks who come from a more Calvinistic um, theological position probably would not want to to throw that all of that bathwater <laughs> and baby out together um, but I think for 
for those who aren't in that camp or maybe those who are, are rethinking even um, their position in light of some of those questions, I think, I think this, um, you know, complements uh, some of the answers that have been given to, to those kinds of questions by theologians and philosophers and so on. Yeah, I like how you mentioned the idea of individuals because this is some we do tend to read in the text. We read uh, modern Western individualism into it when the ancient worldview was much more collectivist. They thought about the group before the individual. We think about the individual before the group. Definitely. And, you know, that doesn't mean they didn't have a concept of the individual. They certainly did. Um, but largely an individual's identity was determined by the groups with which they were associated. So your family, um, your ethnic heritage, even your economic status, um, often those things were basically determined for you. Um, it, I mean, obviously your family and your, and your ethnic status are uh, for, for us even still today. Um, but if you were born poor, um, you were probably going to stay poor. There wasn't a lot of social mobility in, uh, in the ancient world. Um, so, you know, and even what kind of line of work you would do, that was often largely determined by the kind of line of work that your family did. You would learn mm -hmm. your family trade and you would, you would continue in it. So you didn't, you know, you didn't as a, an 18-year-old ask, what do I want to be when I grow up and then go to college and, you know, take some classes and decide, you, you know, a lot of that was basically determined for you. So they did have, a, I think, a much stronger group orientation. Um, and I, I think understanding that, too, I, I really like to point people to um, some of Joe Hellerman's work. He's a New Testament prophet, Biola, and he actually did one of the, um, one of the endorsements for, for the book. But he has uh, a larger monograph that's that's more academic in nature called I believe it's called um, Jesus and the people of God um, but he has a, a book that's uh, more on the pastoral lines uh, called when the church was a family that really I think nicely develops some of that um, social background in the ancient world and then examines what that meant for the first century church and and then ties that to what that means for us as as christians today and and our commitment uh, basically is one of the things that he's he's uh striving to connect there is we they were far more committed uh you know the title of the book when the church was a family we're far more committed to the local church than uh than we tend to be today and it was it really was their social Group. I mean, it was where they got their identity. Their group identity came from the local uh, body of believers. So I think there's, you know, again, there's, I think, important practical applications that come from some of that understanding of the social setting yeah. of the first century. You know, when we read First Corinthians 5 about the man caught in a relationship with his stepmother, mm -hmm. and Paul says, kick him out of a church. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, today we say, well, yeah, probably he can just go down the street and join another church. Yeah. But back then, that wasn't so, and it was meant to be kind of a, a real culture shock. Like, oh my gosh, I'm out here, I'm stranded, I don't have anyone. What What was I doing? Yeah. And you know, and the other side of that is, 
they had, I think, um, and, and N.T. Wright um, and others, uh, but N.T. Wright developed some of this in his huge uh, book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. But light reading, um, right. yeah, light reading. That's a good, you know, sixteen hundred pages before bed. So, um, <clears throat> but they uh, really seem to connect the purity of the body. Mm-hmm. to the life of the individual. So so how you mm-hmm. acted as an individual Christian um, said something about what the body of Christ was mm-hmm. and, and even could, could taint it. You know, a lot of Paul's warnings are for the sake both of, of unity um, but also of purity, of, of maintaining the, the integrity and the purity of the local church. And, mm-hmm. and certainly, um, you know, that's, that's an emphasis, I think, that we largely, it's not that no churches do that, obviously, but that's an emphasis largely that I think mm-hmm. is underappreciated um, in a lot of our churches today. <clears throat> now, looking at the chosen people in Second Temple Judaism, today we can think about all the jokes we can make about how some denominations, we'll look at other denominations and say, they are not true Christians. We <laughs> are the true Christians and such. And that's really nothing new, because Jews back in the time of Jesus were doing that exact same kind of thing about one another, weren't they? I think so. Um, that's that's one of the arguments that I make in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, Mark Adam Elliott, who um, wrote a book, again, a little light reading, I think it's about 800 pages, but a, a little book called uh, The Survivors of Israel, argued basically that from his reading of, um, and he wasn't exhaustive, but from his reading of books like Jubilees and, and First Enoch and uh, even First and Second Maccabees and the Dead Sea Scrolls, that it seemed like the majority of Jews, and we we kind of always have to qualify this, you know, as is evidenced by the the literature that we have. So we don't know what every Jew thought. Um, unfortunately, we would we would love to know more than we do, but the literature that we have. Um, seems to indicate that most of them were fairly sectarian in their in their views. So, you know, a, a great line in uh, in First Maccabees that sort of illustrates this is um, one of the uh, Maccabees dies, and we are told that all Israel mourned his death. Mm-hmm. Well, First Maccabees also tells us that not all of the Jews were supportive of the Maccabean uh, program. So it, it basically seems to say uh, those who are really Israel were uh, were mourning because they were supporting the Maccabees. And therefore, if you weren't some supporting the Maccabees, you're not really Israel. A little bit of trash talk going on. A little bit of, a little bit of trash talk. Um, and, you know, Jubilees is, does this... Um, with a lot of focus on separation from the Gentiles and being mm-hmm. circumcised, you know, on the eighth day, mm-hmm. if, if you're not circumcised correctly, basically you have no chance of, of uh, being on the right side of things when, when the eschaton comes. Um, in first Enoch, first Enoch is interesting and, and Jubilees does this as well. We don't, we don't, I think, really even think of this as being an issue. Um, but there was apparently quite a bit of debate about 
what kind of a calendar uh, they should observe. And some of this goes into the, the issue of separation from the Gentiles. But, you know, should it have been lunar or solar or some sort of a mixed calendar? And according to First Enoch, if you're not observing the right calendar, apparently you're not really a part of God's people uh, because that would also mean, you know, you're observing the feasts on the wrong day, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So so there were all of these these disputes, basically, over what really tells us who God's people actually are. You know, what are the... What are the markers uh, that, that define for us who God's people are? And in some ways, this literature agrees on some of those markers. And in some ways, you know, there's, there's some definitely different takes. Um, so it seems mm-hmm. to me there, there was a little bit of a, of a debate. And I think this shows up even with what we see in the Gospels um, with how Jesus is dealing with people who the Jewish leaders largely viewed as outsiders. So um, not only Gentiles, but, you know, Samaritans and uh, people who were unclean, uh, people who were in certain professions like tax collectors. Well, we still view those as outsiders today. What's that? We still view those as outsiders today. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We do, especially around April 15th. so yeah, I think I think that shows up in, in lots of different ways in the New Testament as well. And so I I kind of see that as informing what Paul is is talking about because obviously as a Jew in the first century, even if he's not aware of all of this literature, and he he probably was aware of of a good bit of it just from things that we see in his letters. It's it's hard to be certain. Um, but even if he wasn't aware of all of it, certainly these are conversations that, that were going on. And so I think, I think you know, the thing that's remarkable, so take Romans 9, is Paul is basically reframing the conversation. Instead of, that, instead of what laws specifically, um, you know, observance of them defines who's in and who's out, it's, Jesus, uh, you know, it's Jesus that defines your relationship to God's Messiah, either as a Jew or as a Gentile, um, defines whether or not you actually belong to the people of God. And so, you know, he, when he says it's not, basically, it's not about ancestry at the beginning of Romans 9, and then he says it's it's not by works, I, I think he's still referring to works of the law, you know, this phrase that he's mentioned um a number of times earlier in Romans. It's not about your adherence to certain um, prescriptions in the law and about elevating certain ones as more important than others, but it's about your relationship to God's Messiah that defines who's in and who's out. Well, when we're talking about this, I, I can't help but think about the uh, E.P. Sanders years ago, because we're yes. far on Palestinian Judaism. He was the one who was really good at debunking this idea that we tend to have that Jews are very, very legalistic in a sense that they were thinking, boy, if we don't follow every single part of the law, we're, we're just going to be out of the covenant. This is something so hopeless mm-hmm. for us, so impossible and such. And really, Jews weren't living under that kind of burden that we think they were, were they? No. I mean, when you hear them 
speaking about the law, there's I haven't found I, I I certainly could be wrong on this, but I haven't found any what I would consider disparaging references to the law in the Second Temple Jewish literature. They viewed it as a gift, they viewed it as grace, they viewed it as um, you know, almost as a revelation of Yahweh himself. I mean, this is God telling them who he is by by giving them this law. Um, so, you know, Sanders, I think, was right in the sense that he suggested this needs to be framed more in terms of covenant. Uh, and I, I think that's the right the right framework. So kind of the, the, the way that I like to describe this is you know, the covenant is initiated graciously by God, um, so there's no merit, you know, and this is very clear in the Old Testament. It's not because you were the best. It's not because you were the biggest. It's not because you were the strongest. In fact, you were none of those things, and I chose you anyway. That's that's basically what God tells Israel. Um, but the covenant is graciously given, and in accepting it, you know, in Deuteronomy we have this famous choose life or choose death sort of scenario. Mm -hmm. So in accepting the covenant, they're basically committing themselves to live a certain way. Right. Um, I, I think when you frame it like that, I don't see a whole lot of difference between what's going on in the Old Testament or, or in Judaism and what's going on in the New because mm -hmm. there's this covenantal relationship that's graciously initiated by God. It's not something that's merited. Mm -hmm. It's not something that, that we earn or deserve. But in committing yourself to it, committing yourself to Jesus, you are binding yourself to a certain, to live a certain way. Um, and, you know, and I think that eases some of the tension, too. You don't, you don't see Jesus walking around um, saying, you know, you're saved by grace through faith. It's, <laughs> it's how, do you, how, do I, how do you know if you're my follower, if you're obeying me? Um, so... So we've driven, I think, a much harder wedge in a lot of ways between faith and works because of some of, um, you know, and right, right, I'm not enough of a Reformation scholar to, to say where the blame should lie. Right tends to place blame on, on basically Lutheran interpretation, um, and that might be true. It might not. I don't know. I'm not. That's not my field. But, um, but certainly I think we've driven this, this wedge where it really makes a lot of things that Jesus actually says um, a little bit uneasy and in tension with, with that sort of theological approach. So, um, so viewing it covenantally, I think, is, is a little bit of a, you know, of a game changer in a sense um, in that it, it makes us recognize that those aren't two different things and that, you know, that works, so to speak, um, aren't, aren't evil. <laughs> right. um, but again, it's, it's Jesus first and then obedience. It's not obedience and then Jesus. Um, so I, I think that, that's an important distinction to make. You know, when we start talking about this, when we mention N.T. Wright inevitably, I think we have to mention the new perspective on Paul. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are, I mean, you saw me respond to an article from Got Questions, I remember, about the new perspective on Paul. A lot of people look at this as if it's teaching some radical new way of salvation that denies salvation by grace through faith and yeah. such. And 
give us the lowdown then. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about the new perspective? I mean, are we denying salvation by grace through faith or justification or through faith or anything like that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so here is, and if you look, if folks want a good little introduction, um, there's a book called An Introduction to the New Perspective. I think it's it's just under a hundred pages. It's pretty short by Kent Yinger, Y-N-G-E-R, um, and it seems to me that first of all, there's not the new perspective. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so the, the folks who are writing from a new perspective viewpoint don't agree on everything. It's not right. monolithic by, by any stretch of the imagination. You mean it Christians seems, disagree on some things? <laughs> it's hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems you heard it here to, first. <laughs> it seems to me what the new perspective authors agree on is is a non-works righteousness, non saved by by what you do view of salvation as it relates to Judaism. Now for some people that might that might you know might be like of course that's you know that's not what we have in the Old Testament. Um, unfortunately I think a lot of Christians still have that perception about the Old Testament. Well you know people were saved by works in the Old Testament but they're saved by grace in the new. Um, no, that's that's there's there's continuity here. Um, so it's Adopting a view of Judaism uh, that understands it was not merit-based, a merit-based form of salvation, and then basically asking what does that mean for how we read the New Testament. Now, the reason that that's kind of groundbreaking is because of Boltmann, because of a lot of anti-Semitic interpretation that went on in the 20th century, that actually became a pretty entrenched view in New Testament scholarship that Judaism was sort of a foil of a workspace religion and the New Testament is is um, even like you know Hegelian uh, interpretation kind of kind of feeds into that um, so the the revolution so to speak started before Sanders um, there were folks like like uh, Stendhal, who were writing and saying some similar things, um, but he certainly broke the floodgates open with his Paul Palestinian Judaism book, and then um, and then done, and right a little bit later, um, kind of officially got associated with it. But there are lots of folks who who are a part of that um, movement, and they certainly don't agree on, you know, justification. Unfortunately, has become the the sticking point on whether or not we should think the new perspective is good, and it's based on really on Wright's view of justification. And I'm not saying you know it's 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 good or bad or whatever. I think he I think it's helpful in a lot of ways, but um, but that's not representative of all of the new perspective authors. So I, I think that's um, you know how we need to understand what the new perspective is is first by understanding what they agree on, and it really is more of a methodological starting point than anything else. And something that I like to talk about when it comes to a new perspective is my first main introduction to it was when I was in seminary, and for my salvation class, we were assigned to read John Piper's The mm-hmm. Future of Justification, which was meant to show us all the problems of what N.T. Wright said. Where I'm reading this book, 
in the middle of it so many times throughout, he's quoting N.T. Wright and what he's saying, and I'm reading the whole time, and hmm, Wright's saying something pretty interesting there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I agree with that. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I, Backfire, I, I, huh? I could largely meet John Piper one day and say, I'd like to thank you for leading me to the new perspective on Paul, <laughs> and it, it, your work was really helpful there. And then I'm, someone <clears throat> sent me a video with <clears throat> Al Mulder talking with a bunch of other people about the new perspective, and I still remember someone on the panel made a sign that says, N.T. Wright may have thought he found something new in the Bible, but he's just going against the tradition. And <laughs> I remember thinking, isn't that kind of what the Reformation was all about? Right. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, Wright, Wright himself has, has not been uh, shy to make that point that... Uh, that there has become a, an entrenched tradition that's unwilling to actually go back and look at the New Testament mm -hmm. in and of itself. So whether he's being fair or not, again, you, you know, you can judge for yourself. But um, I remember distinctly, and you may have been there, uh, I'm not sure, but when ECS was in Atlanta about six or seven years ago. Nope, I wasn't there. Okay. Um, there was a debate. It was originally supposed to be with John Piper and, the, and then... That things got switched up, but it was Wright and, and uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner, who's at Southern, and Dr. Frank Thielman um, were debating justification. And in Wright's um, plenary address, he basically said, um, Reformed theological circles today are the Catholic church of the 15th and 16th century. Uh, I mean, he, in, in, in more or less those words, I think that, I think that address was actually published in jet that year. So you can go read it if you don't want to. Um, but the unwillingness to examine scripture in ways that don't accord with our tradition, um, I think Wright would say, is exactly what the reformers were were battling against. So, again, whether he's correct on on every on all of his interpretive angles or not, I I think that's at least a point worth worth thinking about. Now, something you stress a lot in book also is the concept of covenant, which is mm -hmm. really essential to knowing about the people of God. And covenant is something we've really lost a lot of today. I mean, even when we talk about marriage, which is the first example most people would think about me. If we went to most people on the street and said, give me an example of a covenant, most people would probably say marriage. Mm -hmm. And even today, we'd like a man and say, yeah, but, you know, divorce is just so easy. You can do that any time and such. So we've lost sight of what a covenant really is. When the ancient Jews thought of a covenant, what did they think of? <clears throat> yeah. Um, the... So there are different, you know, in the Old Testament we find different kinds of covenants. Um, so some some folks will point to what they would call an Adamic covenant or mm -hmm. a, a creation covenant. Um, that one, probably of all of them, is is the most debated in terms of whether that's actually there and if it is what it means. Um, but then there's the the Noahic covenant. There's uh, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and then the New Covenant. Um, there was, and he's, from what I understand, he's working on a book that 
Um, I'm not sure when it's going to be coming out, um, but there was an address at ETS a, um, a few years ago, and my goodness, his name is, is slipping my mind. He's an Old Testament um, professor at Wheaton College. John Martin. No, uh, Dan Block, sorry, there it is. Um, and he argued, and to me it was it was fairly convincing. He argued basically that, so the Davidic covenant is sort of its own thing. The Davidic covenant has primarily to do with Israel's uh, king, uh, the, the, the royal line that would um, reign over Israel. But the, that the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the New Covenant are more, we should think of them more as renewals than as different things. Um, and so when you read, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are the two prophets where the New Covenant is, is hinted at. And, you know, it shows up by name in only a couple of places in the New Testament. I think once in Paul... Um, and then in the Gospels at the at the um, at the uh, Last Supper, but the when you look at Jeremiah, you know, twenty nine for example, what's not um, expected is um, that there's going to be a new law. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Basically, it's a change in the people's response to the covenant that the new covenant is going to bring, not necessarily new stipulations. Um, I think I said 20, uh, 29. I meant um, 31. 29. Mm-hmm. Is, I was reading that uh, that uh, meme today about Jeremiah. The Babylon B. Yeah, the Babylon B. So, you know, why, why I think that's important. First of all, a covenant, you know, in terms of, of the Old Testament, the covenants are initiated by God. Um, so they are, are com- completely gracious. I would, I would say, you know, from a theological perspective, they flow out of God's nature as loving, um, as seeking the good of his creation. And they are, you know, in a sense, basically relational, um, but the covenants come then with stipulations, and in particular, when we look at um, the Mosaic covenant and even the Davidic covenant, there are aspects of those that are both that I think are both um, conditional and unconditional. So it seems, and I, I think it's helpful to sort of think of this on two different planes. Um, you know, on the divine side of things. I think the covenants um, are – there's no sense in which Yahweh is going to turn his back on, on his promises. He's faithful. Because of his character, he's going to be faithful. But they are, they are conditional in the sense that it's very clear that if the people reject him, if they fail to repent, that there are going to be consequences. And so, so the covenants aren't necessarily – you know, destroyed or obliterated in light of that, but there's the exiles that result and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think this this play between conditional and un, 
unconditional actually shows up in some of the Second Temple literature as well. So there are places where it seems like basically, you know, God's done with his people. But in the same book, it's very clear because of their unfaithfulness. But in the same book, it's very clear later that he's not, that he's still committed. Um, and so the change, you know, there's this this cute Christian phrase that I think it's, it, it's helpful here. You know, if uh, if God's not there, it's not God who's moved, it's you. That, that's, I think, sort of how we think should think about what's going on with the covenants in the Old Testament. Um, so... The New Covenant, um, you know, I think to me it's helpful to think of what's going on in the New Testament more as a renewal, and that doesn't mean there's nothing different about it. I think there's a great deal of continuity. Um, so as it relates to the law, for example, um, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where Jews are expected to stop keeping the law. Um, I just I don't see that. I don't see it, especially in Paul. Paul's writing primarily to Gentiles. Um, and if we get past the notion that that keeping the law meant trying to earn your salvation, um, I think that becomes less less problematic. So it's again about covenantal relationship. It's about um, it's about faithfulness. It's about obedience. And that's not how you get saved, but that's what it, that's that's what you're signing up for basically if you um, if you commit yourself to to God and Christ. For Gentiles, on the other hand, they obviously aren't expected to keep the law like Jews are. Paul's very adamant about that, specifically as it relates to things like circumcision and like Sabbath observance or observing, you know, special days. Um, so maybe the feasts um, factor into that as well. And um, <laughs> apparently also as it relates to their food laws. But in other ways, he does expect Gentiles to act according to a certain ethical system that is very dependent upon the law. So, you know, Paul's view of what constitutes sexual immorality is a Jewish view, which is based upon the commandments in Deuteronomy and Leviticus primarily. Um, so it's not that the, the law becomes completely irrelevant but there are certainly aspects of it, um, particularly as it relates to, again, circumcision, Sabbath, special days, food observance, that, that they aren't. Um, but, you know, he tells Gentiles, honor your mother and your father. Well, where does that come from? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, right? It, it comes from the Ten Commandments. It, it comes from the law. Um, he, again, his, his instructions on... Um, on sexual immorality over and over again. There, there are places in the Old Testament that those are tied to. Even his, you mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, his instructions there to remove that person from their midst come from Deuteronomy. Yeah, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5. Yeah, I've got 1 Corinthians. You can tell I hang out with Habermas. I've got 15 always on the mind. But, uh, yeah, so do I. <laughs> um, but that, you know, his instructions there to remove them from their midst um, come from, I believe it's Deuteronomy. I'd have to go back and look at the reference. So there's there's all sorts of ways where the law still informs what um, Paul thinks Gentiles ought to be doing, even though there are clearly places where he thinks some of those are not obligated for Gentile Christians. I like how you uh, talk about how 
the Jews didn't, weren't necessarily told to, you know, stop keeping the law and such, because a lot of people were like trying to put this huge opposition between Paul and James, and right. like what Ben Witherington says, and no doubt they disagree on some things, but if you put them in a room together and had them talk about what they believe about Jesus and Christianity and such, you see a lot more of heads nodding in agreement than in disagreement. Well, and, and we don't even have to... Um... We don't even have to make that hypothetical <laughs> because, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, because Paul tells us, you know, in in Galatians 2 that he met with James and Peter and John mm -hmm. and he laid out his gospel, which, you know, I, I think he's basically saying this is what I've been teaching about Jesus. And he says they added nothing to me. They didn't they didn't change anything. So mm -hmm. so unless Paul's just simply making that up. um which I don't, I don't have any reason to think he was. Um, I think we have confirmation from the man himself that they they actually agreed on quite a bit. Now, I'd like to remind you when you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast, my guest is Dr. A. Chad McFarn here. We're talking about his book, The Chosen People. But if you're listening next week, now I had a this guest earlier about which just wasn't feeling that great that day and he, but he's going to be on here it's going to be a first for our show again we're going to have Dr. Francis Beckwith coming on he's going to be talking about his book Taking Rights R-I-T-E-S seriously which is going to be a, talking a whole lot about religion and politics which as we know are two great topics to discuss anytime you get together with friends <clears throat> so next week <clears throat> Dr. Francis Beckwith talking about taking rights seriously for now Let's get back to Chad McFarn here, and he before us go by Chad, talking about the chosen people. Now, something that <clears throat> amazes me about the covenant, and this further kind of deals with the whole idea it was legalistic, is that when you read the Psalms and such, where you hear the people of God talking to God more about the covenant and such, they, their concern isn't so much, am I keeping the covenant? Their concern most times seems to be, God, are you going to keep the covenant? <clears throat> yes, there are there are some uncomfortable psalms, certainly. Um, so, definitely psalms where, um, you know, it's it's interesting to sort of applying things through that framework. You know, the psalmist will at times, even Paul says, you know, Paul calls himself blameless according to the law, right? Like famously in Philippians three. Um, but for all the psalms that, you know, I'm a sinner from birth, from my mother's womb, etc., um, you find a lot of them that say, I'm completely upright, you know, search, look for yourself, God, you'll see I, I haven't done anything wrong, um, so, so why is this bad stuff happening to me? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think part of how we read those certainly is we recognize that they're poetic. Um, I don't think... The psalmist is claiming that he never did anything wrong in his entire life. If he um, did, he's either extremely foolish or extremely ignorant. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, there's there's definitely a question, um, and, you know, this comes up again. The prophets illustrate this, especially in light of the exiles. You know, what's going on? <laughs> Where are you? And the psalm certainly certainly indicate that as well and that is um, that's a question that comes up also in the second <laughs> temple literature um, 
And I think I think that is partly what Paul is responding to as well. Again, in in Romans nine to eleven, um, it's it's there's this you know one of the one of the places I like to sort of camp out in in that passage that I think is important for how we read it is uh, in Romans nine fourteen. It said what it says. What should we say then? Is there and the Greek word is adikia, which is from the dikaios, the dikaiosune, this, this righteousness language um, that we find in, in Paul's letters. And some translations will say, you know, is there injustice with God? Is God unjust? Um, Etc. What, what Wright argues, and, and again, this, this has been helpful to me in reading this passage, is that the chaos language, when we think about what's right, um, that always is framed for the Jew in terms of the covenant. And so when you think about it in those terms, what Paul is asking there is not, is you know, basically, can God not do whatever he wants to do? Um, I think what Paul is asking is, has... God been unfaithful to the covenant? Has God gone back on his word? And what's prompting Paul to ask that is, I think, two things. One, um, his recognition that, and, and actually it might be three. Uh, one, his recognition that most of his uh, Jewish compatriots have not become followers of the Messiah. Uh, the second, that lots of Gentiles apparently had. And so it's like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And and the third, what I think Paul is arguing at the beginning of Romans 9 is, again, that, that it's not about um, ethnic identity. So just being a Jew, ethnically speaking, doesn't mean you're in right standing with God. And it's not about keeping the law. Um, and again, I, I, I go through that. I think that's what he's talking about with his Jacob and Esau examples. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's not about being ethnically a Jew and it's not about keeping the law, well, if you were to ask most Jews who are, you know, who are God's people, it would be those who are ethnically Jewish and who keep the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gentiles largely were not viewed as those who were insiders. There are some exceptions to that in Second Temple literature. Um, but Paul basically is turning that whole construct on its head and, and still arguing that God has been faithful, uh, that God has been faithful to his, to his covenant. And and so in, at the end of 9 and into 10 and 11, I think he's making his case basically for why that can, can be so if, if things are as Paul describes them. Um, how is it that we can still say that God has been faithful to his people? And you have to work through the whole of 9 to 11, I think, to understand that, that that's really the main question that he's dealing with. It's, I don't think the question he's dealing with is how does God save people? And, and the answer is he just chooses who he wants to save and, and rejects who he doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think the question that he's asking is in light of this scenario, in light of the fact that most Jews have not become followers of God's Messiah, that many Gentiles have, and that ethnicity and law-keeping have nothing to do with it, um, how how in the world can you say that God is faithful 
in light of those things? And yeah. it, and I think that's the big question that Paul's wrestling with in those chapters. Yeah, I mean, it could be some people were thinking kind of not the exact same, but on the lines of how Josephus supposedly thought that when Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans, that meant that God had switched sides and I gone yeah. over to the Romans and, hey, Vespasian is the new Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And it, it really helps also because I kind of view Romans as if it's a theodicy of sorts, a defense of God in light of Christianity. Okay, God's done something, it looks new to us, it's Christianity. Does that mean nothing else before matters? That God's moved on past the Jewish people? And unfortunately for a lot of us today, we can have that whole kind of mindset because when we're giving a presentation on salvation, we'll start with the fall of Adam and Eve, and then we'll bypass all this Israel stuff and go straight oh, to the absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and, you know, I think I think even more than that, um, again, in, in terms of framework, one thing that's been helpful to me is not – to even assume that Paul would have thought of himself as a quote-unquote Christian. Right. And, you know, we use those terms today, Christianity and Judaism. We, we talk about them like two completely different religions. And, I mean, that's how they're, that's how they're classified. So, yeah. you know, you have Islam, you have Christianity, you have Judaism. They're different things. Um, I don't think Paul would have viewed himself as converting to a new religion, so to speak. Right. He, I think for him... God has done what he said he was going to do. It didn't look quite like we expected it, um, but he he's still fulfilling his end of the bargain. And, um, and again, the way Paul weaves the Old Testament throughout his letters, um, you know, I, I, so I think even probably it's hard to kind of, it's hard to be too definitive about this historically, but, but I think even probably, up until the destruction of the temple in 70, um, Christians were probably not viewed as outside of, quote-unquote, Judaism. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it seems like it's somewhere between then and the turn of the century when there is a harder break that occurs. Um, but certainly for Paul, that, that wasn't the case yet. Yeah, we, we use the word conversion way too quickly. I'm thinking, I, I'm pretty sure Paul, when he was dying, he would have said, I was a good, faithful Jew to the end. I was so faithful, I followed the Jewish Messiah. Yep, absolutely. And now, when we talk about how Jesus fits in this, I like this quote you got on page 58. I circled it. It's so good. It says, Jesus accomplished what no mere human could, so humans could gain what only the incarnate Jesus secured. Yes, and um, part of what I, I talk about in that chapter is is this idea of corporate representation mm -hmm. where an, an individual basically stands for or represents or somehow um, defines or influences uh, a group. And, you know, from a, from a soteriological perspective, two, two terms or categories that have been really, really helpful to me that uh, a lot of New Testament authors have discussed are, are the ideas of identification and participation. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think most Christians probably 
um, get the first one that somehow we identify with what Jesus did. And, and you know, a lot of Christians probably would uh, be surprised that there's a debate about exactly what that means. So, you know, take something like the atonement, for, exa- for an example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's four or five or, or maybe more different quote-unquote models of, of what that, of how that actually works. Um, but we identify with what Jesus did, his death and his resurrection. But in you know Romans six, I think is a is a chapter where this really comes out clearly. But it, it certainly comes out in all of Paul's letters in different ways. We also participate in that. We also live it. Um, so um, you know we die to self. We die to sin. Those are are activities that are that are expected to happen. And we live in in this new life that we're given, the life of the Spirit. And so it's not just that, you know, there's sort of this transaction that's taken place um, where Jesus secures our, you know, secures an eternal destiny for us. That That's true. Um, but there's something very transformative about that as well that we actually take up and do as Christians that we, uh, you know, Jesus called a disciple, I think, um, you know, I think one of the uh, places sometimes scholars will say, you know, Paul's, Paul seems to know very little about the historical Jesus, about what he taught, you know, because he doesn't talk about his miracles. He he doesn't mention the Sermon on the Mount or, or any of that stuff. Yeah, um, I interact with mythicists a lot, so I see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, Jesus called a discipleship in Mark 8, uh, 8 to 9 is take up, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that seems really close to what Paul is saying when he talks about dying self, when he talks about mm-hmm. um, we've died with him and we've been raised with him, that we are, that a call to following mm-hmm. Jesus is actually a, you know, a call first to die before you are raised. Um, so living, living in a, in a pattern of cruciformity and also living in the empowerment of the resurrection um so that that participation idea, I think, is is really closely connected in Paul to to this notion of identification that that most Christians, I think, get, but we don't always see. I think the second half of that. I think it's really incredible when we talk about the identification thing. This is something I use in my apologetic for You really have no idea what it meant to a first century person all times to say Jesus is Lord and Savior because you are placing your whole identity on this person and crucifixion wasn't just designed to kill someone which it did that very very well by the way but it it was also designed to shame and humiliate that person and when we talk about the movie about Jesus where Pilate, one of, one of my wife's aunt's favorite lines is Pilate talking about it before saying, he'll be forgotten within a week. Mm-hmm. And that would have been the whole idea of crucifixion. Like, okay, no one more talking about that person. If you went to a Jew and you were or, talking... Or if you did, it was... Yeah. It was not positive, I'm sure. Yeah. If you went to a Jew and you were talking about someone who was crucified, you was oh, so you're talking about blasphemy to Yahweh. Got it. If you went to a Gentile, you say, oh, so you're talking about a traitor to Rome. Got it. No one like that would be seen as the Messiah. And so when 
be most like that they place their trust in Jesus. They were really placing their trust in someone who the world saw as either a blasphemer or a traitor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Craig Craig Evans, um, when he, he was at uh, Liberty giving a lecture, I think it was two years ago now, and he shared with us um, a piece of graffiti that, <clears throat> I forget exactly where it dates, I think it date, dated maybe in the second century, but it was a crucified donkey man. Mm-hmm. And you, you might be familiar with oh, this, yes. but it was, it's a piece of graffiti that was found that was mocking um, Christians. And so the fact, again, that, uh, that they worshiped a crucified, you know, a, 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 a God who died, <laughs> a, mm-hmm. cruci- a crucified Messiah is who they're worshiping. Um, they're, seem to have been, and we don't have, you know, incredibly extensive evidence, but we have a lot of evidence, even from historians, that this was a point of derision, that Christians were mocked for this, and and yeah, so, especially for, um, and especially for a Gentile pagan to convert when basically you're disrupting your entire social identity in doing so. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we, we, I think one of the, one of the challenges for people to recognize this is we think of religion very much as an inward, private, individual thing in, in Western, you know, circles today. But in the ancient world, as it is even in, in places in the Mediterranean world today, there's a very big social dimension to religion. And so, Participating in the emperor cult, participating in in regional practices devoted to certain deities. You know, we read about this uh, in the Book of Acts how there were disruptions to aspects of that because of people converting to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really were you really were giving up not only some of your social identity but a lot of your social capital uh, in doing so. And I th- this is. Something I think that um, I've, I've read Larry Hurtado's working on some aspects of this for a book that's either coming out or um, destroyer of the gods. Yeah, yeah, and basically asking the question: Why did people convert to Christianity when it was so socially disadvantageous? Um, so I do think you know something has to explain that. From a historical perspective, and I haven't I haven't read Hurtado yet. I, you know, obviously on Christology and other things, he's um, I think he's incredibly helpful. But that that I think is a question that has to be answered, and um, it obviously requires <clears throat> something significant to explain it. So whether that's simply how close knit the Christian communities were. Um, but beyond that, I think I think theologically, it, I think it shows that people fairly early on were convinced that this Jesus stuff that is talked about in the Gospels actually happened and change uh, changes um, everything basically changes who they what kind of people they should be who their allegiance is to how they how they should live and and on down the line. Yeah, I'd like people to know since. Uh, he brought up Craig Evans. At first off, Craig Evans was back on our show 
on March 1st of 2014 talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, in fact, I've been in touch with him again. He's got a book that came out recently, Jesus and Remains of His Day. Excellent, excellent book. He's going to be back on July 16th for probably about an hour or so. Less than that, but we're going to be talking about that book. And since Larry Hurtado was mentioned, I know about the book because I've already gotten in touch with a publisher. We're working on getting a copy over here so we can have Larry Hurtado come on to talk about that book, hopefully because that's a huge area of interest for me. So if those topics really interest you, where you've got an episode you can go back and listen to with Craig Evans, and you've got two you can look forward to listening to in the future, I want to let you all know about that. Now, we're also getting to the time where I like to remind everyone, this is listener-supported work. Everything we do here is free. My guests come on for free, even. I, I, I wish I could... I wish I could pay them. I wish I could do something more, but no, they come on their own freeware, their own time and such. And everything we do here then requires your support. Now, there are some ways you can support us that aren't financial, of course. You can pray for us, and gosh, we'd appreciate that so much. And let, let us know every now and then just, how much you like the show, what it means to you and such. I mean, I see someone make a post about the Deeper Waters podcast and such, and it's very positive. It's it's really uplifting. As people in ministry, we really need to know what you think about what we're doing and that you appreciate it. And if you go on iTunes, leave a positive review. I love seeing those reviews. And tell your friends, tell your family about the Deeper Waters podcast so they can be listening. But if you want to do a little bit more, then you just go to our webpage, and that's at deeperwaters.ddns.net. And there's a link there that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that link, you're going to go, there's, there's a link in there, you click it, and you're going to go to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, that's the Ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. They're my in-laws. And... When you go there, you can make a donation. You get in touch with Mike and Debbie, or you get in touch with me or Allie. You say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. My mother-in-law is a financial guru specializing in clergy taxes. She will make sure we get the donation, and it will be tax deductible. And if you can become a monthly donor, that is something huge for us. And again, I really wish I could do something great to show you my appreciation right now. I just can't, but hopefully that is in the cards somewhere in the future. You can also buy some books that I've got on Amazon. Most of them are co-written. Books like Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or God and Natural Disasters, A Debate with an Atheist. Or you can look at the one that I've got, and I've got several others that need to be written. They're waiting, and I'm just slacking too much. But one that I've written already is A Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. It's the church I used to go to in Knoxville. We said the Apostles' Creed regularly. So, just like any other good geek, I thought, hmm, I'll write a book on it. And also, another way you can support us is through jewelry. Guys, I'm, I'm not sure how many of you have caught on to this yet, but women seem to like jewelry. You know, they, and let's face it, many times, 
We like the way our women look in jewelry. You want to make them happy? Go buy some jewelry. And you can do that through the link at our site. The code word is love, let myself, or Lena Cluster, who handles that for us. No, and if you purchase anything there, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. Now, that's a, a pretty good deal, so if you please consider donating, supporting, anything you can like that goes. You know, this is something that I give up regularly. I give two hours every week in my life to doing this show, and that's not counting all the time spent in between reading the books. And yes, we're the huge majority of part. I read the books before the guests come on, and you can imagine what it's like trying to work for the master's courts, trying to help a project's ministries, and reading books for a podcast all at once, and somehow I have to do it. Um, Chad, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to or support? Yeah, two that uh, that I could mention that <clears throat> my wife and I support and, and really appreciate what they do. One is Freedom 424. Mm-hmm. Their website is freedom424.org. Uh, they are an organization that seeks to both raise awareness but also to rescue women and children out of um, sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a Lynchburg-based organization, but they work, you know, nationally and obviously internationally as well. The second is World Help. Uh, their website is worldhelp.net. They are also um, a Lynchburg-based organization, and they're focused primarily on uh, international humani- humanitarian work, but they also have child sponsorship programs. They do a lot with trying to provide... Uh, Bible translations across the world and um, and lots of other really good things as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, this human trafficking and you talk about a, it, it it's definitely a real deal. We had a news story lately about a church that I know of that actually had a children's minister involved in human trafficking, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's really tragic. It and uh, I know my father-in-law told me that. Dan Allen Durr, I think that's his name, he wrote the book God Loves Sex with Trimper Longman. He said that uh, every time he goes by a truck stop, he prays about the sex trafficking industry because a lot of it happens at truck stops. You know, you know this, is, this isn't just something going on with the report. It's going on right here in America. Absolutely, yeah. Now, let's get back to what we're talking about here with the chosen people. Now, I I often get hesitant when I hear people talk about replacement theology of sorts because I'm often accused of believing in replacement theology because my theology is Orthodox Preterist. And I say, no, no, my theology isn't replacement. God never said to me, forget the Jews, I'm going with the church now. I prefer to think of it as more an expansion theology that God said, the Jews are my people, and here's where the Jew is, and I'm opening that up, and I'm letting Gentiles come in all the more now that God didn't just cut down the old tree of Israel. He just simply puts new branches on there. Yes. Um, I, I think I'd be pretty close to that. Um, so 
obviously Romans 11, the, the grafting in, um, I take it more to be about the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's people than about the church replacing Israel. Right. Um, I, I think one of the things that's a little bit difficult to be too precise on in this area is that um, Paul, you know, so basically Paul never tells Gentiles that there are Israelites. Now, there, right. there are two places where that's debated and some have mm -hmm. argued that he does. That's at the end of Romans 11 and at the end of Galatians as well. Um, but it, it seems to me what Paul is trying to do in, in Romans, in Ephesians, in 1 Corinthians, in other places as well, uh, Galatians obviously, is to maintain that there is a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But Jews and Gentiles in Christ are also uni united, or at least should be united. And obviously they weren't always, because that's why he wrote Galatians and why he wrote Romans. Um, so I think there's a sense in which they retain their ethnic identity, but also in which their ethnic identities are transformed and also very much secondary to their identity in Christ. So, you know, Paul talks in Ephesians about about the two becoming one new man. Um, and, and so some have referred to this as, as what we should think of as a third race. Uh, it's, it's something other. Um, but, you know, again, clearly, clearly Jews didn't have to stop keeping the law, but they also had to not pursue that in such a way that either offended or cut off their Gentile brethren. So, you know, mm -hmm. Galatians 2, I think that's, that's the issue that's, that largely seems to be prompting what Paul's writing in Galatians is this issue of table fellowship that uh, Peter stopped associating with Gentiles because these people from James come. And their Jewish sensibilities basically were causing them to no longer associate with Gentile brothers. Um, you know, something similar Paul talks about at, at the end of Romans as well going on. Um, and then for Gentiles, they, even though, again, you know, so in Galatians, Paul said there's neither Jew nor, nor Greek and in different places. He seems to allude to something like ethnic identity goes away, but I don't think I don't think Paul thinks it goes away. I just think it becomes secondary, and it also is transformed specifically for the sake of unity. So there are also certain things that Gentiles maybe would have done. Um, so, for example, eating food sacrificed to idols that Paul tells them they need to be careful of in order to not offend. Uh, you know the quote-unquote weaker brother. Um, so I think it's I think it's a little bit messier sometimes than we want it to be. I do think inclusion is is the right idea, um, and I think obviously for Paul that all centers around identification with Jesus. So um, so you know at the at the end of Romans 11 when he says all Israel will be saved, which is one of those, you know, passages that there are maybe 
five or six different interpretations of what exactly is going on there. That's five um, or six. Yeah, maybe there's probably <laughs> more. Um, uh, but I, I don't think so. Some have interpreted that basically as Paul saying all ethnic Jews are going to be are going to be saved regardless of their relationship to Jesus or not. Um, and I, I find it hard to get there in light of Romans 10. So mm. I, I do think that there that the centrality of of their relationship to Christ determines whether or not they're in God's people. Um, but that doesn't mean that that Israel goes away. That doesn't mean that Gentiles are the new Israel or Gentiles become Israelites. Um, but in in spite of that, it's clear Paul thinks of Jews and Gentiles together as one people of God. They're to be united, uh, not divided. They're not to, to let these ethnic distinctions destroy the unity of, of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, what Ben Wiverington wrote in his book, What Have They Done With Jesus, where he talks about James as a witness to Jesus, and he says, James really had to play the role of the ultimate middleman, because he didn't want to make uh, Christianity be something seen as totally opposed to Judaism, so he didn't want to uh, remove all of Judaism from the same Side, he didn't want to make it be that when Paul was going to the Gentiles, they were saying to the Gentiles, yeah, you pretty much have to become Jews if you're going to be Christians. And he was walking a very fine line. Yeah, and I think Paul is too. <laughs> on the, you know, He's on the other side of that. James is on mm-hmm. uh, the, the primarily Jewish side of that line, and Paul is ministering on the, on the primarily Gentile side of that line. And there's definitely, you know, there's definitely some landmines uh, that they're both, I think, trying to avoid. Um, and that's, that's, again, I think, re-emphasizes the importance of us having an awareness of some of these, these social and cultural issues that were going on in the first century. And also, when we're reading, asking the question of who is this author writing to? Who is their audience? What are they communicating? You know, sometimes one of the things that I I try to be careful with in in Galatians and Ephesians in particular in the book is this us-we language. Um, I think it's really easy for us as 21st century Christians when we see we in Paul's letters, we assume he's talking to us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we, it's it's just us Christians, right? Um, But I think often Paul uses that we you language actually to distinguish between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Um, and so there's, again, there's one people of God, but the issues on, on the, on the different sides of those ethnic distinctions aren't the same. And so there's a great deal of, you know, pastoral care more or less that, um, that they're trying to take in addressing those audiences and their and their needs and their issues and their questions. Yeah, you know, I think it's important we keep in mind the old adage when reading the Bible that most of it was written for us but not to us. Yes, absolutely. Now, you talk about pastoral care there, which I think is especially important because a lot of people out there in the church face struggle with the idea of covenant, and I think we can have the same sort of question. I mean. We often look and say, you know, am I 
Am I doing enough to be in the covenant of God? Did I say the right words when I said the prayer? Was I baptized the right way? Things of that sort. I mean, if you spend that time with Gary, you know that he deals a lot with people who struggle with doubt. Yeah. Especially about their salvation and such. And I think in the long run, we're kind of asking the same question the Jews had with God, because it's a trust question with God. I mean, we were kind of coming to God and saying, God, I think I'm doing everything I can, but are you going to catch me on a technicality in the end? <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. I think I think putting it as it's a trust question is, is the right way to put it. Um, so... I think I think two things and you know how I think how you answer that question largely needs to depend on where people are coming from. I I I say this about the you know when pre- people bring up the question of eternal security um mm-hmm. you know well, we have we have these passages that affirm it and we have these passages that seem to question it and you know these warnings in particular and what do we do? Well, mm-hmm. some people need to hear the warnings. Yeah. Um, but but there are some people who, if you give them the warnings, are they're going to spiral into you know into this the circle of doubt. Um, so I think I mean I think the first thing is to realize that it's about Jesus, not about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, Christ died and was buried and was raised, and if you are in Him then you share in what he secured. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe that raises the question, well, how do I know if I'm in him or not? You know, what, is, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, and it's definitely, I think, I think it's relational. Um, and that's why it's not, we, I think we want to sort of codify it sometimes and make it very black and white, but it's relational. Um, and so it's, you know, how do I know if I'm in good standing with my wife or not? Well, have I, you know, I've been, have I been treating her kindly? Have I been actually spending time with her and so on and so forth? So are I think you mean Col- we're supposed to do that. We are. I think so. <laughs> I've heard it once or twice. Um, so I think cultivating that relationship is important. And, you know, so how, do, how does one do that? Well, obviously there's, there's sort of the essentials that, that people mention, which are, you know, reading scripture and praying and meditating and and practicing spiritual disciplines. But I think I think one of the things we neglect sometimes in that is being connected to the local church and having meaningful relationships with other Christians where you can encourage one another. Um you know, the the other side of that then is the barometer that I think we're given in Paul and in this is, I think really really comes out in First John and in some other places as well, is um, are you on the right track? <laughs> so this doesn't mean this doesn't mean that being on the right track is what makes us right with God, but it's the, it's how we take our temperature. Um, so the way that I, the way that I talk uh, to my students about this sometimes is, do you see an upward trajectory in your life? 
And I'm not just talking about from yesterday to the day or even last week to this week, you know, over the last year, over the last five years, over the last 10 years, do you see an upward trajectory in your life? Do you see yourself growing closer to the Lord? Do you see Mm -hmm. victory? Do you see maturity? And if you don't, I think that is where we need to take our temperature, you know, and, and ask, why not? Um, so some combination of those things I, I think is the right answer. O- obedience is a part of the Christian life. It must be a part of the Christian life. But obedience isn't, again, you don't you don't get set right so you can come to God. You come to God so you can get set right. And so there's a process of transformation, and that process occurs best when we are cultivating that relationship we're, we're studying, we're meditating, we're praying, we're in fellowship with other believers. And if you're, if that's happening in meaningful ways and you're still struggling with things you were struggling with 10 years ago, then, you know, get some pastoral, meet with a pastor, you know, get, get some, some advice from, from folks that you trust and you know are gonna, are gonna, um, speak well into your life. Mm-hmm. I often, when I talk about the issue, I say, you know, you could debate back and forth constantly, does the Bible or teach eternal security or not? So, you know what, in the end, it's not going to really matter to the people who are struggling because they'd say either I didn't do things right or it doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter because I never was saved or else, you know, maybe I was, but I probably lost it by now. Mm-hmm. And, and say what you have to do with these kind of things is just ask them a question. Are you growing in trusting Christ? And mm-hmm. are you going to do what you're supposed to do anyway? Because you can talk about, is God going to keep his covenant? Well, the obvious answer really is yes. The question isn't, what's God going to do? The question is, what are you going to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's <clears throat> how Paul answers it for us very often. And I think what we can remember about Jesus being the chosen one, as it were, because my main thing is that it's not so much there's elect people, there's an elect person, and those who identify that person or consider part of the elect is that when Jesus is the one we identify with, then that means we identify with the life that he lived entirely, and also with his crucifixion and his resurrection. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I was talking with my father-in-law about this back in April when we were going to his debate with Shabir Ali, and we started talking about Romans 7 some, the passage that's usually said to be autobiographical, and he said, I don't think it's autobiographical, but I think it's kind of describing the Christian life. Anyway, I said, you know, I, I have to disagree with that. Really, how come? And I gave my concerns, you know, if we identify too much with Romans 7 and say, yep, that's us, that's who we are, we might miss that what Paul really wants to get is who we are is Romans 8. And Romans 8 says a whole lot of really great stuff about us as part of the body of Christ. And in with with a great speech start with, we will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. 
Yeah, and I, I think it seems to me, especially reading 13 to 25, that Paul is contrasting his life without the Spirit and his life with the Spirit. Um, so it's hard for me to take that as his struggles as a Christian. Um, I think it mm-hmm. is, I think it's Paul basically summing up, yeah, the law wasn't a bad thing. The law is actually very good. You know, it's from God. Um, it, mm-hmm. it has an important purpose. But the law without the Spirit is only going to bring death. So mm-hmm. how do we get out of that cycle? And it's through Christ and the gift of the Spirit, and that's exactly where, you know, he goes at the beginning of Romans 8. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't think he's talking about his struggle as a Christian there. I think he's mm-hmm. actually talking about the futility of, or the inability maybe of the law, apart from the empowerment of the Spirit, to do anything about this problem of sin and death. When you talk about your view of election and broken, identifying who the chosen people are, do you think you could be a consistent Calvinist and hold it, or a consistent Armenian and hold it, or does it exclude one view? What's your take on that? Um, I guess that depends how you define a consistent Calvinist. Um, and I, I think Calvinists, at least Calvinists that I know, define that differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly this view has been articulated more on uh, the Arminian, Wesleyan, and non-Reformed Baptist um, side of the of the fence, so to speak, even though there shouldn't be a fence, I guess. But um, but there are um, certainly some Reformed theologians mm-hmm. that have, I think, articulated something very, very similar to to what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so N.T. Wright, obviously, now. Part of that is what do you mean by reformed? I don't know if he would call himself a Calvinist or not, um, but he's Anglican, so he's he's on the reformed um, side of things, and I think you know is articulating something similar to um, what I am. Um, from what I know, and I don't know that much about him, but from what I know about Herman Riverdose. Uh, who was primarily a 20th century theologian. Um, he, I think, wrote and worked mainly in reform circles. I could be getting that wrong, but has, again, articulated something similar to what I am. Um, there is a book um, by an, a um, called The Divine Marriage, Roman the Divine Marriage by a fellow named Tom Holland, mm-hmm. who, as I understand, is also on the reform side of things and is is articulating something similar. So what it, what seems to me is that more and more New Testament scholars, because of the um, emph- emphasis and recognition of the importance of dealing with the Jewish background of the New Testament, um, are coming to something close to this, at least in their exegesis of Romans 9 to 11. So whether that means that that upends, you know, some part of their theological, <coughs> excuse me, system or not, I'm not sure. But exegetically, it seems like 
more and more are coming to this conclusion in this passage that that the you know sort of typical Augustinian or Calvinistic interpretation probably isn't the best way to read um, what's going on in Paul. So, so I think again, there's there's folks along the spectrum. Um, even though historically this has more been, I don't consider myself an Arminian or or a Wesleyan, even though I appreciate lots of uh, those authors, just like I appreciate a lot of Calvinistic and Reformed folks as well in different ways. Um, but I, I don't, so it might involve some tweaking, um, mm. but I think, again, in there are examples of, of folks on the reform side of things that would probably be close to what I'm articulating um, and still consider themselves in that camp. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what would you say to the average layperson who's going to get it at this and really understand more about this? And, what kind of thing do you want them to walk away from your book having realized? Well, I one of the things I ask in the conclusion um, that maybe I should ask at the beginning, and, and maybe more people would be interested in it, but um, is why does it matter? Right. So I, I think this is um, this is a subject that is sort of notorious for being, you know, the typical seminary hallway debate you know waste of time when we could be doing ministry it doesn't really matter and so on and so forth right um and there's obviously some of that i think that that's valid that's true um what i think that my view reinforces is is a couple of things that i think are are important not just theologically but practically as well so so one of those is on understanding ourselves as Christians, and I think this is important as Westerners, not as people along an individual path of a spiritual journey, but as belonging to the people of God. Mm. Um, so our identity ultimately is, in, is informed and formed by Jesus, but we cannot separate that identity from, from the body of Christ either. Mm. Um, I think understanding the unity, uh, the importance of the unity of the people of God, especially along lines of ethnic distinction is important as well. Um, I think this is, I think this is what Paul was actually working towards. And so it seems to me there's some lessons that we can pull from that. Uh, I think it also underscores the importance of thinking of the Bible as a big story. Um, not as bits and pieces of individual, you know, life or suggestions for how to live better, but it's a big story. It's ultimately about God and what and what God is doing, uh, and I think this reinforces that. And and then the last thing I would say is um, that one of the things that a lot of Old Testament scholars have brought out with election in the Old Testament was. In a lot of the key passages, there's sort of this fundamental missional undercurrent to it. Um, so God's people were to act differently. There was, you know, the, the matter of, of both personal but also corporate holiness. And, you know, a great, a great line uh, that we get in the Old Testament is Israel is told they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Mm-hmm. 
and sort of the, the, the implication seems to be, right, if everyone's a priest, then, then who's being ministered to? Um, and it's, it's the nations. They, they were to be a light to the nations, as Isaiah says. And so I think understanding that that story is still our story and recognizing that this, this theme of election, which we find in Scripture, actually has a lot to say both about how we live but also what we're doing in terms of uh, being missional and, you know, that word's used a lot today. What is, for me, what, what that has to include at least is being a great commission, great commandment kind of people. So loving God, loving others, and making disciples. Um, I, think, I think those are at least a big part of what should be at the heart of what we are doing today as Christians. Mm-hmm. I really like how you spoke about individualism there because I think individualism is really one of the biggest problems that we have facing the church today. That a lot of our bad theology and such comes to us because we're so individualistic. Yeah, absolutely. And you know this um, this sort of sub narrative of you know, embrace who you are and, and uh, you know, write your own story and and so on and so forth. Um, there's there's aspects of that maybe that can be healthy, but but understanding there's a there's a story that's bigger than your story mm-hmm. and that's better than your story. Right. That that you need to be a part of mm-hmm. and and also um, recognizing that again kind of a a quippy way to put it is, you know, God God certainly calls people where they are, but he doesn't expect them to stay there either. Right. Um, so just simply em- embracing your self-identity, um, I, I don't think that's what Jesus is calling to calling us to. So there's, there's some balance there, obviously. Um, it, that doesn't mean we... Um, you know, go on the other end of of just beating ourselves up all the time or or whatever. There's there's balance, but I think we're on we're on the other side of the pendulum of that um, where that needs to be brought back a little bit more to the center and where our focus is on Christ and again on our place as a part of His people, um, not just me and Jesus and and uh, you know that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if we got this also, the body of Christ would be a whole lot better of taking care of itself. That we would rejoice with those who rejoice, and we would mourn with those who mourn mm. a whole lot more. And instead of just viewing some people as the very important ones and others as disposable. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course... We we in fact have much better theology because, like you said, it's all about what Jesus did for us. And then the question becomes, what are we going to do in response for all that He's done for us? Yep, that's it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting close to time. I think I've got enough time to really start another round of questions here. So, um, Chad, do you have a, a blog or website or way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of ways. So I have a, a profile on academia. Um, if if you're interested in looking at that, just search for Chad Thornhill on academia.edu, mm-hmm. I think it is. 
Um, and you can also find me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. My handle is at Chad Thornhill. And if you're interested, there's a link there to my personal website as well um, where you can go see, you know, publications and Vita and, and all that stuff. I do have a blog. I'm not, not that uh, consistent with it. Um, so I won't, I won't mention it because it's probably embarrassing how, how late the last time I posted was. But, um, but yeah, those are some ways that people can, can find out more if they're interested. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Um, buy the book, obviously, right? That's number, uh, that's number one. Um, no, just thank you. I really, I really enjoyed it. If people have, you know, questions to follow up or, um, you know, kind of what about this? What about that? Um, I'd love to, I'd love to chat. And again, I've, uh, you look me up on Twitter or, or find, you can, you know, tweet at me and we can email or, or whatever. Um, but I really appreciate the invite and I've enjoyed chatting with you today. I like to remind everyone the book is The Chosen People, Election Paul and Second Temple Judaism. I'm looking on Amazon right now. The paperback is $30.04, and the Kindle edition is $16.49. It's published by IVP. It'd be a wonderful addition to your library. I give it my endorsement. So I'd like to, just like to thank you for coming on, Chad, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, Nick. I like to remind everyone next week. We're going to have Dr. Francis Beckworth coming on, talking about his book, Taking Rights Seriously. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.